Well, thanks again for the um, lovely opportunity to spend <coughs> this weekend uh, with you. It's been a great joy for Pip and me to see you in uh, good heart and in great voice. So uh, thank you so much for um, embracing us in uh, your weekend together. I just need to pray and uh, then we'll start. Father, we do thank you that uh, we don't live by bread alone, but we live by the words that you speak to us. Father God, please would you speak to us this afternoon, words of life, words that will bring us peace and hope and joy, because they're words that will lead us to Jesus. Amen. Amen. Uh, Fifteen years ago next month, um, Pip and I flew home from Paris. It was a gloriously sunny evening, and as we prepared to take off, the um, stewardess uh, ran through the normal safety routine, oxygen masks dropping from the panel in the ceiling, and how to put on your life jacket, and I personally was enormously excited at the thought that my life jacket was going to be fitted with a a whistle and a little light. And um, she she did it all very nicely, and it was incredibly routine, and no one paid any attention at all. It's not that planes never crash, it's just that planes involving us never crash. Except things do happen. Things happen like the things that happened on the 22nd of May this year, when 22 people died, including children when a terrorist bomb ripped through the Manchester Arena. Stuff happened that night. Stuff happened shortly after, on the 3rd of June, when three terrorists ran ran amok through Borough Market, killing eight people. Stuff happened on Wednesday, the 14th of June, when a fridge freezer burst into flames, destroying a 24-storey tower block in Kensington, and killing at least... 80 people. And stuff had happened in the little town of Sarum, where we lived in the Fens, and to which we were returning. Two weeks previously, two young girls, Holly Wells and Jessica Chapman, known across the world, sporting their Manchester United t-shirts, had gone missing, and the search was still on. How were we going to survive this? And here in this last passage in our short series in Philippians, Paul returns to the subject of joy. Philippians is jam-packed with joy, overflowing with joy. Sixteen times in these four chapters he urges his friends at Philippi to rejoice. And yet don't forget the setting. Verse 1. My brothers and sisters, you whom I long and love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm. Stuff happens. And we need to know how to survive when stuff happens. And I want you to notice how Paul begins this uh, passage. He's not sort of barking out in commands like a a rough sergeant major uh, commanding some raw recruits. But neither is he like the air hostess, running through the routine for the thousandth time, with nobody listening. 
No, he, he gives his survival guide to a group of people who mean a very great deal to him. My brothers and sisters, you whom I long, uh, love and long for, my joy and my crown, I want you to see how he feels about them. You whom I love and long for. It kind of takes us back, doesn't it, to those, those words in chapter 1 where Paul opens his heart to these people. I have you in my heart, I love you with all the affection of Christ, he says. And notice how he describes them, he describes them as his joy and his crown. One of the things that used to discourage me hugely when I first became a pastor were pastors fraternals. They always happen on Mondays, and if I'm honest, they were far too dominated by pastors complaining about their people. And it just isn't right. These people, these friends in Philippi, for all their faults and failings and foibles, and I'm sure there are many, are Paul's joy and crown. The word crown here um, doesn't sort of imply domination. It implies celebration. Here is Paul thinking about the laurel wreath that's given to the winning athlete at the Olympic Games. To win that crown, that medal is the peak of every athlete's ambition. And this is how Paul feels about his friends in Philippi. He's the evangelist who led many of them to the Lord Jesus. He's watched them grow through the years like a child to a parent. They brought him so much joy and satisfaction. If you're married, can you remember that first love? How proud you were to introduce the love of your life to your friends and your family. Well, here is Paul looking forward to to the time when he's going to introduce the loves of his life to the love of his life on the last day. Lord, I want to introduce my brothers and sisters here at Philippi, the people you gave me, here they are. Aren't they beautiful? Mike and Chris, it's a sign of great spiritual health and it's a sign of great gospel potential when church leaders love their people like this. Just let's look around the room. These these faces, these names, these lives, may they ever be your joy and crown. But again, remember the context. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom, you, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, you need to stand firm. It's not going to be easy. You, you live in such a corrosive world, you're surrounded, as we were thinking earlier on today, by people who simply do not share the things that matter to you. People who don't understand you. And you're going to need a survival uh, kind of technique. You're going to need uh, the secrets of surviving in this harsh environment. How are you going to do that? And it seems to me that Paul is kind of giving us three um, aspects of this survival guide. And the first is that we need to invest in each other. Invest in your relationships. Back in Rome, Paul, in, uh, under house arrest, has evidently received a, a visit from Epaphroditus. I imagine Epaphroditus is one of the elders at Philippi. And as Paul quizzes him about how things are going, there's a huge amount to encourage him. 
But there's one thing that begins to worry him, an ominous crack that is beginning to open up in the fellowship, which the enemy will very readily exploit. I think we picked the first hint of it up back in chapter 2. But here in chapter 4, Paul tackles it head on. There's a personality clash between these two lovely ladies. Both of them leading figures in the church. I can't pronounce their names either. Odious and so touchy, I think, probably is the nearest, nearest I can get to. Paul knows these ladies well. He remembers their names. Even as he writes, he sees their faces. And he goes back to moments in his diary when he has worked so closely with them. And yet whatever's blown up between them is a threat, not just to them, but to the peace and prosperity of the whole church. And if the church is going to survive in the corrosive atmosphere of Philippi, church needs to invest in these two women. In our media-saturated world where naming and shaming is par for the course and ritual humiliation seems to be the, the name of the game these days, it's easy for us to dismiss the significance of verse 2. But remember, we're talking about the shame and honour culture of the first century, where it is everyone's temptation to sweep everything under the carpet. You don't speak people's names if there's something difficult to be said. And yet here Paul addresses these two dear sisters by name. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche. It's pretty hard to be more direct than that. And remember this appeal flows straight out of what he's just said about these two women being his joy and his crown. He can only write what he writes in verses 2 and 3 because he's written what he's written in verse 1. Don't you think it's tragic that all we know about these two women is around? All down the last 2,000 years, we don't think about the women, these women won for Christ. All we get to think is that they fell out with each other. And when we get to the glories of an age to come, we're going to be wandering through the crowds looking for them. And we're going to bump into somebody and we're going to say, you sympathy. Just what happened between you and Rodia? Did, did you ever get to make that up? It's always good to check, isn't it? What kind of trouble we're leaving behind us? Well, the pressing question for us now is, is what does Paul say about it? What does he want us to do? And it seems to me he provides really helpful guidelines for us here if we're going to invest in one another. First of all, he creates a positive atmosphere. He's already done that in verse 1 by speaking about these people whom I love and long and long for, my joy and my crown. And he keeps on doing that look. In verse 3, I ask you, uh, my con- true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. These are not bad women. These are not troublemakers. They've been in the thick of it with me. I remember them with great affection. It's a lovely thing, isn't it, when we can create a positive atmosphere in which reconciliation can take place. And then I love the way that he doesn't try to work out what the outcome should be. He doesn't say, well, it's pretty obvious that one of them's right and the other's wrong. 
just help Euodia to wake up and see what a fool she's been and tell Syntyche to be a bit more forgiving and gracious. No, it isn't like that. It's highly likely that this isn't a moral issue or a doctrinal issue. It's just highly likely to be a personality thing. Paul would remember that only too clearly. I wonder even now if as he writes his own mind goes back to a painful day in Antioch years before when he and Barnabas had such a sharp disagreement that they had to part company. Paul knows all about the pang of broken relationships. So he doesn't attempt to set the agenda. He just says, you've got to help these guys, these lovely ladies. And then just look at it, what is it that he wants them to do? He doesn't want them to come to see eye to eye about everything. Help these women, since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. I want them to be, verse 2, of the same mind. That's a little phrase he's used before, isn't it? Help them. Help them to develop the same kind of attitude that Jesus a willingness to let go of what is theirs in order to do good to the other. And then will you look at the way he appeals to the congregation not to leave them to get on with it. Guys, I need you to help these two dear sisters to face up to their difficulties, to be able to talk and pray this through and to come to some kind of reconciliation. I, I know for myself, Pip, Pip's instincts are much more to get involved. She sees a problem and she kind of wades in. I see a problem and I back off. I don't, I don't know if I want to get involved in this. I don't think there's very much I can do to help. They're not going to listen to me. I don't think I want to get involved. I just think this is a real kind of challenge, isn't it, to our, our Western individualism. When trouble rears its ugly head, my instinct is to let people get on with it. Let them sort it out themselves. Paul could not disagree more profoundly with that. No, yes, I ask you, as my true companion, you help these women. And you see all the, the whole thing, when you add it all together, we just see how, how deeply, deeply tender and pastoral Paul is about all this. Like a good pastor all the way through this letter, he's been preparing the ground. I wonder how Euodia and Syntyche, and maybe the two parties that were beginning to gather around them, I wonder if they squirmed in their seats just a little bit as Paul began to expand the true heart of the Lord Jesus, back in chapter 2. See, he was preparing the ground then, and now he tackles it head on. Step one in Paul's survival guide is invest in your relationships, invest in each other. Differences of opinion will inevitably arise. We kind of touched on this a little bit yesterday. Don't be afraid of conflict. God often uses conflict to bring about some really significant changes that perhaps couldn't even happen any other way. What we need to be worried about is what we have here, unresolved conflict. So let's look after each other. If we're going to survive in today's corrosive environment, let's invest in each other. 
And then the second step, I think, in the survival guide is to invest in the Lord Jesus. To invest in our worship. Philippians is a a letter about joy in the Lord, isn't it? So come with me to the well-known words of verse uh, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Dear brothers and sisters, let's learn to enjoy the Lord Jesus. Whoa. Maybe even now some of us kind of bridle at that thought. That's kind of almost a contradiction in terms. Enjoying the Lord Jesus doesn't quite chime with our experience. Fearing him? Yes. Obeying him? Of course. Learning about him? Certainly. But enjoying him? I mean, isn't that what we're going to be doing in heaven? Can there really be room for enjoying Jesus in a world where we're surrounded by pain and sorrow and stuff that happens? Isn't the very question, should we, can we enjoy Jesus, just a reflection of our hopelessly hedonistic Western culture? Well, no, not according to Paul. See how he says it, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. And actually, even in saying that, he's only repeating what he said already back in chapter 3, verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Just look with me at verse 4 for a minute, will you? I want you to notice the two key adverbs, always and again. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. But those two little adverbs suggest to me that this is not the icing on the cake. This is right at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. This is what flows out of knowing Jesus for ourselves. The response to divine grace is human joy. Paul is the theologian of joy. You remember we just mentioned this yesterday, chapter 1 verse 25, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Now Paul never denies that there are problems in the Christian life and he spelled some of them out in the last chapter. But he does encourage us to rejoice even in the middle of them. If we're going to survive in the rat race that is West Yorkshire today, We need to take his survival guide seriously and rejoice in Jesus. Now, I would like to um, try a little experiment with you. And on the count of three, I want you to do something. Nobody is going to be embarrassed, possibly apart from me. So here we go. Ready? One, two, three. Be happy. I didn't say snigger uncontrollably. (laughs) I said, be happy. Go on, just do it. No, we can't, can we? It doesn't work like that. I can't command you to be happy. And yet somehow that seems to be exactly what Paul is doing. So how does this work? And I think it works because the key phrase is rejoice in the Lord. Do you remember something we we said right at the beginning of yesterday? Joy is never found directly. You don't find joy in seeking joy. And here we find joy in seeking Jesus. We invest in him. 
we delight in who he is. This gloriously, I almost want to say recklessly, self-sacrificing God of chapter 2. We delight in what he's done for us. In becoming obedient, even to the death of the cross. We are ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven, and all because of what he has done. We delight in what he's doing now. God is at work in us today, here and now, to will and to do his good pleasure. And we delight in all that he's promised to do in the age to come. When by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, he will transform our lonely body. So that they're like his glorious body. We rejoice in him. I think if I change the experiment a little and said, one, two, three, what do you love about Jesus? There might be a lot of smiling faces around the room. See, our joy is in him. And when we invest in thinking about him and loving him and worshipping him, that is what is likely to put joy in our hearts and a smile on our face. So here is something I do want you to do. And you can do it, and you need to stand up to do it. I've done this with lots and lots of pastors this year. They've managed it, so I'm pretty sure you can. And uh, it's going to appear on the screen now. I want us to say what is our identity in Christ. There's a whole load of sayings there. Just have a little look through those. If you're a Christian, every single one of those is true of you. And there's a load more. And there's a load more. And it isn't finished yet. That is who you are in Christ. That is why you should have a smile on your face today. So, up on your feet... Nice and quickly. And why don't we say this together? Now, we could do it in a kind of English way, which would be quiet and measured. And why don't we not do it that way? Why don't we just belt it out and kind of declare it? Because if these things are true, nothing but nothing but nothing could be more important. So, here we go. This is who we are in Christ. We are a new creation. We have been justified freely by God's grace. We have been washed and set apart for God. We are right now seated with the Lord Jesus in the heavenly realms. We will never again face the threat of condemnation. We have received the spirit of adoption through whom we cry out to God as our Father. We are joint heirs with the Lord Jesus. We have been made righteous in him. We have confidence to approach God because of him. We have been redeemed by his precious blood. We are members of God's family. Chosen, holy, and dearly loved. We have been made priests and citizens of God's kingdom. We are called brothers and sisters by Jesus himself, who will never be ashamed of us. Well, we've got a wow.
I just long to be Pentecostal sometimes, because I think if I was, I'd completely lose it at this point. And wouldn't that be good? But listen, I see a lot of smiles on people's faces. I can tell you to be happy, and you are utterly unmoved by that. But we begin to think about who Jesus is and what he's done for us and who we are in him. And you can't help smiling. Well, most of you. (laughs) Do grab a seat. But dear brothers and sisters, this is who we are in him. And this is why Paul wants us to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, he says, rejoice. And just look at verse 5. I want you to see, we haven't really got time to unpack too much of this. But how being so conscious of the Lord Jesus changes everything. It changes our relationships with one another, just kind of harking back to verses 2 and 3, because we will let our gentleness be evident to everybody. We will be so grateful for all that he's done for us, so humble that all that we are in him, that the last thing we'll want to do is to be heavy-handed with each other. And when we find a Euodia and a syndicate, we will want them to know the joy of the Lord which is lost in their conflict as we enjoy it today. We will be gentle towards one another. And look, we will be prayerful towards him. The Lord is near. This is difficult, but I want to try and say it, and I want to try and say it well. Where was God on the 22nd of May? Where was God on the 3rd of June? Where was God on the 14th of June? Where was God in Salem back on the 4th of August 2002? When two little girls made the tragic mistake of knocking on the wrong door. And the answer is, he was right here with a broken heart and tears running down his cheeks. He was here. And he's here. Now. And because he's here, we will be gentle with one another. But look, we'll also not only want to reach out to one another, we'll want to reach out to him. It's inevitable, it's totally natural that we'll want to talk to him about all the things that concern us. What are the things that concern you today? That's a kind of rhetorical question, but you know. But whatever they are, if you're rejoicing in the Lord and you're conscious of his nearness, you'll want to talk to him about them. And I love the way that Paul gives us a little crash course on the theology of prayer, and he urges us to pray in every situation, in everything. Yet when things are going well, let's rejoice and be grateful. When things are going badly, let's cry out to him. And he wants us to be specific by prayer and petition to present our requests to God, not praying in generalities, but just getting down to where the rubber hits the road. And always to pray with thankfulness. It was so helpful that we sang that song. My heart is filled with thankfulness. The only trouble is it makes me want to cry. The reason it makes me want to cry is the very first time I sang that was at my very last service at Salem. We sang this at our farewell service, love. My heart is filled with thankfulness to him who walks beside the God who's near, who causes my, who floods my weaknesses with strength and causes fears to fly, whose every promise is enough for every step I take, sustaining me with arms of love and crowning me with grace. That's Paul's survival guide, isn't it? 
We need to invest in each other. And we need to invest in him. And when we do look, the peace will not only make us mark on other people, it will make us mark on us. Because what does Paul say? The peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in this one in whom you rejoice. The word for guard is a kind of vivid military term. A detachment of soldiers standing guard over a city under attack. And here is the Lord Jesus promising to stand by us in this corrosive world in which we need to stand firm. And he says, I'll look after your minds wherever your anxious thoughts are born. And I'll look after your heart, which is the very control room of your being. It's um, said that the optimist sees the donut while the pessimist sees the whole. We have a wonderful relationship, Pip and I. She's the optimist, I'm the pessimist. There's a lot to be said for Christian optimism. But that's not quite what Paul is talking about here. However bad our circumstances may be, and they may be truly bad, there's one place we can find joy. Again, just harking back to yesterday, we kind of made the remarkable observation that joy is often at its deepest when we are in trouble. Suffering and joy are not incompatible. Well, let's move on, shall we, briefly. And think about the third aspect of Paul's survival guide. Invest in each other, invest in the Lord Jesus, but invest in yourself. Invest in your inner life. There's a, a little saying that goes like this. That a man is not what he thinks he is, but what he thinks he is, he is. Does that make sense? A man is not what he thinks he is, but what he thinks he is. Just reflect, will you, on the national mood at the moment. Maybe you were scanning the papers after, after lunch. It's just a temptation to give in to doubt and despair, isn't there? There's a kind of almost universal mood of gloomy pessimism. I love it. <laughs> so as we get to step three in Paul's survival guide, he urges us to set our mental agenda, not around the press, but around the good things in God's world. Whatever's true, set your heart on whatever's true, as opposed to false facts and alternative truth. Tune your heart to whatever's noble, in contrast to all the stuff that's dishonourable and just unworthy. Tune your heart to those things that are right, as opposed to those things that are wrong. Tune your heart to whatever's pure, instead of those things that are dirty and sordid. Tune your heart to whatever's lovely, as opposed to those things that are morally ugly. Tune your heart to whatever's admirable, instead of those things that are disreputable. Tune your heart to whatever's excellent and praiseworthy, as opposed to those things that are shoddy and shameful. It's mighty hard to think this way these days, because we are surrounded by a a world that kind of, an image-driven world, that, that in kind of invades our inner being in every, at every turn. 
Our minds, our imaginations, infiltrated by images and words from television and newspapers and films and adverts and conversations and all the events that go on around us. Right, says Paul, you need to, you need to invest in your inner life. You need to focus on what's good. And does this little list in verse 8 remind you of anybody? Noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Yeah, think about Jesus. Fill your mind with thoughts of him. Begin every day by tuning your heart to him. You don't have to have a quiet time in the morning. Any time of day is good, but it is kind of fairly odd to hear a kind of orchestra tuning up after the performance. They do generally do it beforehand. That does kind of seem to make some sense, doesn't it? Just begin the day by praying and reading the Bible and inviting the Lord Jesus into your life. I know it sounds ridiculous, but but I, did, I, I tried to try to make the first thing I say in the morning. Not, where's my breakfast pit? But, morning, Father. That sounds absolutely stupid. Anybody who hears it would think I'm completely mad. But I just want to say, I'm remembering that this is your day, Lord God, and I'm your son. So why don't we start off on the right note, morning, Father. And it's kind of way of just tuning in. Memorise bits of the Bible that we can, mem- we can use during the meditate on during the day. Kind of tune into some worship or some teaching on YouTube. Expre- expose your souls to the beauty of art or literature. Share the good news of the Lord Jesus whenever you get the chance. But whatever you do, invest in your inner life. We have a little kind of Paul test. It, it is, yeah, Philippians chapter 4, verse um, 8. And, and it kind of sits on top of the television. And the theory is it is just meant to help, help, to sort of moderate what we watch and what we do. The trouble is, I get so used to it being there, I kind of see through it. But it would be a good thing, wouldn't it, to invest in my inner being and to ask, what is going to help me to survive today? Listening to this, watching that, getting involved in this over here. I I can't... I can't regulate what my eyes see but I can regulate what my mind thinks. Well, I've said enough of mine. If we're going to survive in the rough and tumble of Philippi in the first century or West Yorkshire in the 21st century, we need Paul's survival guide because stuff happens. We need to invest in each other, invest in Jesus, invest in ourselves. And look how the passage ends because we are going to end at verse 9. You'll be relieved to hear Whatever you've learnt or received or heard from me or seen in me, I love that. Here's Paul going back to what we learnt in chapter 3 about the power of influence. We cannot under, overestimate the power of influence that we have in each other's lives. Put it into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. Ooh, that's interesting. Because in verse 7, Paul spoke about the peace of God. But here he ends with a far more spectacular flourish. The God of peace will be with you. 
See, for all Paul's survival guide, God does not want us to survive. He wants us to thrive. And ultimately, it's not peace he wants to give us, or joy. It's nothing less than himself. Why don't we pray? Father God, thank you so much for all that we've learned from this lovely, lovely letter. Please, Lord, forgive me for things that have been inadequate or clumsy or just omitted or plain wrong. But please may your Holy Spirit take what has been good, what has been true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy. Please, Holy Spirit, take those things and embed them so deeply in us that we are slightly bigger people tomorrow because of today. Amen.